there's something of a danger in being disconnected from the land. There's something hazardous to our souls when we lose awareness or uh, attunement to the cycles of the seasons, to the sacred rhythms of the sky and, and the soil, to the agricultural calendar. See, we live here in a bustling digital Babylon, a busy Bay Area that has much to do with high tech and all things silicon. For most of us, our livelihoods don't require for us to know when it's time to plant seeds and when it's time to harvest. It's just simply not how our lives work. Such things are left to the hobbyist, right? To the, to the gardener. See, we can go to Trader Joe's and we can go to Whole Foods and we can buy things that aren't in season. And we can buy things that would never be in season, that would never even be grown here, right? Which is a great blessing in many ways, but there's a problem with it as, as well. It tends to disconnect us from the origin of the growth of the production of that food. So in short, the, the grocerification of and the I can buy anything at any time aspect and land disconnection all have us somehow thinking that it is Trader Joe's that is the giver of avocados. <laughs> that it is Whole Foods that is the giver of and land of oat milk and raw honey. It just does something to us. It forms us in strange ways. We're not an agrarian society here. And because of it, we can miss some of the beautiful truths that the Bible teaches. We can miss treasures that God has embedded within space and time and what he's written into the seasons and into the soil. See, what it does is it often blunts our awareness that God is the provider, that it is God who is the great giver. And when there's all these stores in, in the, the line between us and the food and all these processes in, in between us and the food, sometimes we, we forget that it is God who gives the rain and it is God who splits the seed and God who, who makes the food grow. We forget that it's God who brings our sustenance and it's God who brings life out of the ground. It's lost somehow in the commercial process of it all. I, I, I tell you, it is far different. It's far different to go to the store and buy a bag of lemons and then come home and kind of mindlessly use them for whatever it is versus going into your backyard and pulling some lemons off the tree that you've been trying to cultivate for a few years now and it's finely fruited. And then you hold that fruit in your, your hand and you marvel. There's just a natural greater sense of, of gratefulness, of awareness to this little round yellow miracle of pulp juice and, and flavor that came out of dirt and popped out of a stick. That, that's a miracle that God has wrought. Now, why do I tell you all this? Well, because we are going to be looking at the ancient feast of the Jewish people called the Feast of the First Fruits. Yom HaBechorim. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, the Feast of the First Fruits. And as we've done each week in this series, we are seeing how each one of these feasts and then the aggregation of these feasts, when you bring them all together, how it paints a portrait of who Jesus is. 
We're going to be seeing how God has ingeniously written into the flow of history and by these feasts a telling of the gospel story. So in other words, we are going to see how God has um, been working throughout history to train the imaginations of his people to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what must be done and who God is and who we are in light of who he is and whose we are ultimately. Now, quick overview of the feasts, in case you haven't been with us. Um, It's one plus seven. This is in the book of Leviticus. God appoints these one plus seven feasts. The first one is the Sabbath, the Shabbat. That is the weekly day of rest and delight, of letting go, showing that you're not in control. The world's going to keep spinning if you're not working. Now, uh, by the way, really quickly, each one of these you can distill into a key word or a core truth that is being put forward by the, the feast. And so Sabbath is about rest. Then we looked at the Passover, which is about redemption. Then last week we looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is about cleansing. This week it is First Fruits, which is about resurrection. And the next week we will be looking at Pentecost, then Trumpets, Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And the cool thing is when you step back and you see what God is writing in history with these feasts, the portrait of Jesus is painted. So Jesus has invited us into his rest, the joy of his rest, rest, that's Sabbath, by redemption from slavery. That's Passover, cleansing from sin. That's unleavened bread. And today it's the giving of resurrection life. And that is first fruits. And then he is gathering for himself a people of repentance who delight to live in God's holy presence. So today, first fruits. Why is this not just an ancient oddity and historical curiosity? Well, there's a lot of meaning to unpack here in this feast. It's thick, it's rich, uh, it's ripe with a lot of symbolism. It points us to the gospel and it points us to Jesus. And uh, Wendell, Wendell Berry once wrote in a fantastic book called Jaber Crow, uh, he, he said, to tell a story is, is like to, it's like reaching into a granary full of, of wheat, grabbing some and pulling out a handful. There is always more to tell than can be told. There's always more to tell than can be told. So we're going to reach our hand into the granary today and and pull out a handful, but just know there's more to be told. First thing to know, though, before we open up this passage of Leviticus has to do with uh, our seasons and geography. There are a lot of seasonal and geographical parallels between us here in the Bay Area and Israel, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the whole, whole land there. Uh, so a lot of parallels. So first, seasons. How many seasons do we have here? Two. Thank you. Yeah, we have two seasons. We have the wet season and the dry season. We have the dry season being summer when the hills are what color? They're gold, guys. They're not brown. I got corrected on that my first year here. They're not brown. They're gold. We have the golden hills, dry season. Then we have the rainy season, and the hills become like astroturf, right? There's a reason why Dublin was named Dublin. It's just all green and it's glowing. We have two smaller seasons, right? Spring and fall. Okay, so both of our regions that we're talking about today, Israel and the Bay Area, have this kind of seasonal pattern. We have microclimates and and diversity in those patterns. Also, um, when it comes to harvest season in Israel now, it's more uh, harvest seasons rather than harvest season. So here's a breakdown. Here's how it works. 
So September and October, that's when the first rains come. So very similar to us, right? Some of those first light rains come in September and October. And this is the time for the people of the land of Israel where they are preparing their fields, they're, they're plowing their fields. Then as we go into November and December, this is the seeding of those fields. So, so the grain is put into the ground. A few months after that, you have the barley harvest. So that's March and April, and that links with this feast of first fruits. A few months after that, we're going to have another crop come out of the ground, and that is the wheat harvest. That's May, June. And then after that, towards the end of summer, we have the vintage. We have the, the grape harvest. So why do I, why do I tell you this? Uh, the key point here is that the first crop of the year is what? Barley, yeah, right. It's, it's the barley harvest. And that links up with the first fruits festival. Okay. So I should say that the first fruit festival happens during the barley harvest or the barley harvest happens during the first fruit fe festival. Like it's just in, intrinsically linked. And this is really important um, because these two main crops of, of barley and wheat, like this, this is life for the people. Uh, grain con constituted over 50 percent of the average person's total caloric intake. So over 50 percent, it's probably more like 65 to 70, which means this is their sustenance. This is their bread of life. If it doesn't go well for the barley harvest, if it doesn't go well for the wheat harvest, it does not go well for the people. Okay, with that said now, uh, we need to link up these first three feasts. The first three feasts we're talking about were Passover, unleavened bread, and this feast of first fruits. Those three feasts all happen within a week time. They're all linked together. They're all linked together. So there's just a couple days in between, and actually the Feast of First Fruits is in the middle of the week-long one of, of unleavened bread. That's going to be important here in just a moment. So with those facts kind of floating in our heads, let's reread our passage and see how we can pull this together. Verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. On the day after the Sabbath, there we go, my emphasis is better, uh, the priest shall wave it. Okay, so uh, what day is the Sabbath? for the Jewish people. Saturday. So what's the day after the Sabbath? Sunday. Okay, so we're talking about Sunday, the first day of the week. So keep in mind what's been happening. We've just had the, the Passover. That's the slaughtering of the lamb, the rescue from death that remembers the Passover that happened in Egypt. And then following that, the next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what's that one about? That's the putting away of leaven, or that's the getting rid of corruption or, or evil or sin. That's leaving your old life behind because they're moving out. They're going towards the promised land. And then after these, after the Sabbath of that week, the very next day, the Feast of First Fruits begin, which happens again on what day? Sunday. Sunday. Okay. <clears throat> so... I think this will help us. We need a bifocal lens when we're talking about the feasts. We need a bifocal lens. So first lens is the Exodus. That's Israel's salvation from slavery and death. It's the historical event of, of God saving his people out of slavery and death from Egypt. That's the first lens. So these, these feasts recall this journey from, from uh, slavery to liberation. 
right, from death to life. But the second lens is the Jesus lens, the ultimate salvation from sin and death, the ultimate salvation from sin and death. So we need to see these things simultaneously because one points to the other and the other is the fulfillment and the completion of the other that God embedded in space and time so that we would see it was all about Jesus all the time. Okay, so does that make sense? First lens, second lens, bifocals? Okay, so with that said, <clears throat> here's how it plays out. Here's those three feasts we talked about, Passover, unleavened bread, and now first fruits. So if you look at those three with the first lens, with that historical lens of the history of Israel, and then we'll, we'll look at it with the cosmic lens of Jesus, uh, there was the death of the lamb, right? The lamb was slain, the blood was painted on the doorposts, and then they, they ended up leaving slavery in, in Egypt, okay? And, and then, then we see there was the removal of leaven. They didn't have time to put leaven in their bread because they were off to a new home. They were leaving the old way of life behind. And then they were going to then have a harvest and reap grain when they got into the promised land. The second lens, though, the cosmic lens shows us that the lamb is Jesus. It's the death of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice that saves us is, is Jesus. And then Jesus is buried and with him goes our sins, with him goes our corruption of our old nature and our broken, twisted heart goes into that grave. And then he comes up out of the ground as life, as the bread of life. That's the resurrection. So you see how those bifocal lenses work. The exodus and Jesus. The exodus and Jesus. I mean, it's honestly, if you just pause for a second and look at that and try to take that in, and think of the intentionality, what God has been doing, how he's been writing history all along to show us who Jesus is. It's staggering. It's truly staggering. Well, with this said, let's now go further into the specifics of this feast that has to do with resurrection. Yom ha Bechurim. Yom ha Bechurim. The feast of first fruit. So let's read verses 12 through 14 now and see what they're supposed to do on this day. So verse 12, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish, blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And then the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen, and you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statue forever, throughout your generations, in all your dwellings. All right, what's going on? Well, in short, they would take a bundle of the first barley from the harvest. So there you have a, a sheath of it. There's a, there's a bundle of barley. And what they would do is they'd bring it to the priest and he would wave it east, west, north, and, and south, and the, the, thing, the idea was, Lord, you are Lord. You, you provided this. You turned seed into this food. You made the skies drop water. You made the soil produce this. You gave this to us. So we, we're giving it back to you. First thing, your God, not, not Dagon, the, the God of the Philistines, who's supposedly the fertility God and the grain God. Not Baal, but you. These other gods aren't God. You're God. And so we want to honor you. We want to give this back 
to you. Then there was to be the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb. And then there was to be a food offering. There was to be bread and there was to be wine. So giving back to God, saying that life comes out of the ground because of God, uh, a sacrificed lamb without spot to be fully consumed and burned up, and then bread and then wine. These images just come colliding together in this three-dimensional way if we have the eyes to see it. And then all this is to be done first. That's the key word here, first fruits. And then this is to be done first, first, first. In other words, God's teaching us how to live a rightly ordered life. He is the giver of all good gifts. The very first thing we should do is come to him, acknowledge that he is the giver, and offer those things back. That's why we give the the first of our finances and the first of our, our energies, the first of our attentions, because he is worthy of the first of all those. And we show that gratitude, right? It's call and response. He calls and, and we respond in gratitude. That's how to live a rightly ordered life is, is to give him the first of all that he has granted you. And then he ends up doing wonderful things, multiplying that and sustaining you and, and bringing more. It's incredible. Now, there's a lot of fertile imagery in here about the Messiah. Uh, here's, a, here's a picture, by the way. I love this picture. This is from 1905. This is the barley harvest uh, taking place in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the, the house of bread, right, where the Savior was, was to be born. So 1905. Now, again, I'm going to help you out here. It's the first harvest of the year. So this is the first fruit, the first crop of the sustenance that comes out of the ground. So again, the harvest of the year. What harvest of the year is it? It's the first. Okay, what does it mean that it is the first? If there is a first, then there is a? Yes. If there's a first, there is a second. There's more barley that comes after the first barley. If this barley comes, then it means there's going to be then the wheat harvest. And then there's going to be the fig harvest. And then there's going to be the grape harvest. In other words, first is a, is a trigger so you know, ah, oh, more is coming. More is coming. So the barley harvest is a sign that life has come and there is more life to come. That's why it's the first fruits, because there's more fruit to come. The first, the first has come, now there's more life to come. So expect it. Live expectantly that God is going to provide more because he's already provided what he's given. So if you step back and look beneath the skin of it all, you see there's a death and there's a burial and there's new life. A seed has died. A seed has been torn open and it's buried under the ground and it's, and it's hidden in the ground. And in time, it will come up out of that ground and it will bring generative life. So those first sheaths of barley are portents, they're heralds, they're messengers that more life is going to come out of the soil. Friends, this is about resurrection. This is about resurrection. And this is exactly why Paul makes this connection explicit in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's read that. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 14 through 19. Here's what Paul says. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's it's useless. It's futile. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep, that means those who have died, in Christ have perished. I mean, they're not getting back up. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Like, Paul's just honest. If Jesus didn't get out of the grave, this is a waste of time. Because we are following somebody who said he would break the back of death, get up and rule and reign, and and usher a new creation into existence. If he didn't get out of the grave, this is just a complete waste of time. If he didn't get out of the grave, it puts Jesus into the same category as all the other great dead teachers. If he didn't get out of the grave, he's in the same category as the dead teacher Buddha or Muhammad or just whoever else. But he did. He got out of the grave. He's not just a great teacher. He is the living God who gives us a new nature and then teaches us how to walk in step with the Spirit and live out that new life. Because he got up from the dead. And, and not only... Those things, like if he didn't get out of the grave, then we're still in our sins because our old sins weren't put into the grave and then we didn't rise to new life. So we're still stuck in our sins. We might have a new moral structure and we might have some uh, religious formation stuff that's put on top of us, but we don't have a new way of being in this world because a dead guy can't give us new life. No resurrection, no reason for all of this. Jesus got out of the grave and vindicated his claims that he is, was, and always will be the Son of God. And it was, you know, what's so cool is that when he, when he rose from the dead, he wasn't just seen by a few people. He was seen by a lot of people. Scriptures tell us he was seen by hundreds of people. By hundreds of people. And this, this makes me think of the fact that, you know, you know how there's a lot of people in this world who... Uh, are deceived about things and they will they will die for those things right people will die for something that's completely wrong a lie like all the time it happens the world over terrible things are done in the name of, of, of something because they believe that's true so people will die for stuff all day long but people do not die for what they know is not true and they especially won't be brutally, excruciatingly tortured for what they know is, is not true. They, they cave at some point if they know it's not true. If they think it's true, they might go through with it. But if they know it's not, then why do it? Why in the world would these first followers of Jesus not only die for this Jesus and say he was resurrected, why would they do that if it, if it wasn't true? And, and again, moreover, why would they be flayed alive heads lopped off, torn apart by animals if they knew it wasn't true. They saw the resurrected Jesus and they had his resurrection life within them. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, Paul says. Again, of those who have died, they will rise like he did. Now, verses 20 through 23 in in 1 Corinthians 15, this is great. He says this, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. What does that mean, Paul? 
I'm glad you asked. Okay. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at the coming those who belong to Christ. Let that sink in. Paul has just woven old and new together brilliantly. He has said to, to us in a, another passage that Christ is the Passover lamb. Paul is thinking of the feast through both an Exodus lens and a Jesus lens. Then he says we are to celebrate. Paul says we are to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread by putting off all that is evil and live in righteousness and love. He's thinking through the feasts, uh, um, the, the lenses of the feast, Exodus and Jesus. And then he says here that Jesus is our first fruits. He's the first to get up out of the ground and if he's the first, then that means there's more to come. There's more to come. He died. He rose again. And so it is with his apprentices. We will bodily rise again. Jesus is the first barley that comes out of the ground. And there's another harvest coming. And that is, that is the wheat of all of those who love and trust him. Now, this is needed for everyone. This is needed for everyone. Paul takes us from the barley harvest back to, to the Garden of Eden. He says that all human beings are, are enslaved and the wages of sin is death. So death is coming for all. Why? Because of one man. Who is that? Adam, right? And then the, the, the second Adam, who is? Is Jesus, right? One who lived perfectly and loved and who would take the consequence of sin and not throw his bride under the, the bus and blame her. Adam. Jesus does the opposite and says, I'll take it. And he steps in, right? And he's and is active and takes the hit. See, sin has brought death to us all. But Jesus is the one who brings life and resurrection to all who love and to trust him. Now, um, a few integrating thoughts. Let's pull a few of these pieces together. The first has to do with the name of this feast. Yom Chabakorim. Yom is, is the word for day. Uh, you might have heard that term, Yom, like Yom Kippur, and the Day of Atonement. But Yom, Yom means day. Uh, then there's this word Bakurim. And that means promises to come, or the promise to come. How cool is this? The promise to come. And the root word for that word Bakurim is, is Bakur, which means the firstborn. In other words, it's the day of the promise to come. Jesus, the Messiah, was promised to come from Genesis 3 on. And even before the foundations of the world, he was, he was, he was going to come because the Father had designed this. So there was a promise that the Messiah would come. And he came and he went into the ground and he rose again, promising he would come back, promising that we would then rise with him, the promise to come. Jesus fulfills it perfectly, all the way down to the rhetorical level of the words. It's awesome. Okay, so there's that bit. Now, then we, we need to see this. Uh, in Christ, we have resurrection life when? Now. It's not just someday. There's resurrection life within us now, and then someday we will bodily be resurrected from death. There's resurrection life within a follower of Jesus now because when, when he transforms the heart of an image bearer from stone to flesh. And when they're born again, when they're made anew by the power of his spirit, they become a new creation. You're a new man. You're a new woman. You're not who you once were. How good is that news? You're not who you were. 
Praise Jesus, I'm not who I was. You should be praising the Lord that I'm not who I was. He is good to us. We're united to God, drawn into the very life of God. The eternal life of God is within us, which means we will rise from the dead. So someday we will rise from the dead bodily. No gravesite will forever hold a child of God. What a truth. No gravesite will, will ever forever hold a child of God. They will get up. So why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 55, he says, we shall not all sleep. In other words, there will be some of us alive when Jesus comes back. We won't all be dead. A lot of us will be, okay? But we won't all sleep. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. Do you want change? God, change me. He will change us ultimately, completely, perfectly. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? The temporary will become everlasting. The good will become better. The, the rough, hewn, uncut stone that we are will be cut, polished gemstones. The, the, the sand grains that we are will become shining stars. It will be better. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says it this way in talking about this. He says, <laughs> when you're learning to ride, they give you unimpressive horses. Only when you are ready for it, you are allowed an animal that will gallop and jump. In other words, what is coming next is even better. Paul also writes this in Romans, Romans 8, 22 through 24. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, for the redemption of the ethereal wispy bits of us. No, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Groaning, is anybody groaning? Has anybody groaned this week? Does this creation groan, the timbers creak? Oh, I've been groaning. There's difficulty. There's things I'm facing that are painful. My, my heart groans. I have this, this weird tendon thing going on in my hand. My, my hand is groaning. I know some of you who are facing terminal illnesses and you're groaning. And you're fearing the loss of a loved one and you're groaning. This world groans. But the groaning proves that it was meant for wholeness and restoration. We will have a bodily resurrection. This is why it says in Luke 24, Jesus says, he says, here's my hands, bone, flesh, touch them. I have a body. 
we will have a body. And on this point, there's a lot of really, really bad, unbiblical theology out there floating around. People think there's just this disembodied reality and called, called heaven. You know, my, my grandma, so this is, this is more than a few years ago, before she passed, uh, my last conversation with her, I went to see her and she was scared to death of death. And I'm like, Grandma, um, you, you love Jesus and you have, what's troubling you? Why are you so afraid right now? And she goes, I don't want to be a ghost. And I'm like, oh no, are you going to haunt me? What's happening? Like, are you coming back for me? Uh, and I said, what, what do you mean, Grandma? What, I don't, I don't want to not have a body. That scares me. And it's like, oh, Grandma, I have the best news for you. Not only are you going to have a body, you're going to have a glorified body. Jesus came back with flesh and, and blood and could do all sorts of things we couldn't even fathom. And you are going to get one of those bodies. You are a fully embodied being and you will be for all eternity. And she goes, oh, I like that. It's like, me too. And then that's what the Bible teaches us. Now, um, Okay. How do you apply to your life a sermon on the resurrection? You can't practice resurrection. Yeah, you can. You can practice resurrection. In Christ, we have resurrection life now. Live like it. In Christ, we will be bodily raised. Live like it. Live like death won't hold you. And there's so much fear holding us back. You, me. And there's this fear of death and there's fear of all these different losses. Live like death won't hold you. How do we do that? A couple, couple of reflections here, just a few. One is, is this. Memento mori. Memento resurrectio. You've probably heard the phrase memento mori. Maybe you've seen it um, on, on something. Maybe you've seen it on a tombstone or a tattoo or something. Uh, and it's often a phrase that, that goes back to the Stoics. You know, not Christians, but Stoics. Like, just know you're going to die and deal with it and figure out life. Uh, but the monks, the, the, the monastics, uh, those who follow Jesus, they would often put a skull on their desk. Um, and that was to remind them, like, you, you, that's where you're going. You're eventually going to die to help them live and to count their days. Moses says in Psalm 90, count your days. There's wisdom in this. Know that you're mortal. Know that your frame is, is dust. This is what the season of Lent is about, right? That, that cross of ashes that goes on the head, what is that for? Well, it's, it's, you know, when they put that on, they say, you, oh man, you know, from dust you've come and dust you will go. In other words, remember that you are from dust, but, but the cross of Jesus transforms that death to unfading life. The cross of Jesus takes those ashes of death and turns them into embers of eternal life. So be mindful of your death. In other words, live honestly. You're going to die unless Jesus comes back before you die, which would be amazing. But live honestly. You're going to die. But live, hopefully, you will rise from the dead in Christ. And that kind of reality changes everything. Second, uh, be a courageous witness of life in a culture of death. Speak the truth 
of life in this culture. Because the reality is there are those in this room and those out there who will be resurrected to, to new life. And there are those in this room and there are those out there who will not be resurrected to eternal life with Christ. There are eternal consequences. The seeds of eternity are planted in time. We are to be courageous in speaking forth the gospel and telling people who Jesus is because there are people out there who don't know who he is or they have a completely broken narrative of who he is because of the media and the garbage they're swallowing or because of their broken background. We need to be courageous in speaking the truth of who Jesus is. Speaking of which, Easter's coming. What an opportunity. Be praying about two or three people that the Lord would put in your path that you could courageously invite because you know there are eternal consequences and you have resurrection life in you and you want it in your neighbor. Be thinking about that and praying about that. Third, reframe losses through resurrection life. In other words, we experience death in a lot of ways. We experience death via loss of life, loss of a loved one, the loss of relationship, the loss of a physical capacity, the loss of a facet of our own health, the death of a job, the ending of a season. But for those who have resurrection life and know what's coming down the road, have hope that when a part of your life is dying, God can bring something bigger and better and more beautiful through whatever the pain is. We don't have to despair over endings because God uses them to bring even better beginnings. Only where graves are is their resurrection. Only where graves are is their resurrection, said Karl Barth. Okay, uh, I want to take you on uh, a, a brief journey with, for a memory that I had this week as we come to a close. All, all of these thoughts regarding death and resurrection, uh, you know, just had me in a place of a lot of reflection. And so a memory uh, arose in me this, this past week. Um, and it's about something that we've lost in the church uh, at large. And, and it, I'll just say this. So years ago, we were burying somebody that was really precious to us. Uh, deeply precious to our family. Um, and uh, we were at a small church out, out in the country uh, in, in Colorado. And, uh, you know, in the shock and the, the, the grief of it all and trying to process. And then as we walk away from the gravesite, I was just struck with this vision. But it was the vision of the surrounding. It was the vision of this the small country church made of sandstone, built in 1882, and surrounding that church was the cemetery. The cemetery was at a church. The church had a cemetery. The church had a cemetery. Do you do realize that for most of church history, churches were the places that had a cemetery around them. You, you would locate a cemetery by finding the church, right? So much so that churchyard became uh, synonymous with cemetery, but not so much anymore, right? Who wants a cemetery on their church campus? Inconveniencing all the newcomers with reminders of death, right? Who wants the morbidity of graves freaking people out while you're trying to grow all your ministries and say, come join us, life is perfect and awesome with us. Don't mind the tombstones, right? Who... Who wants that? 
We have removed most signs of death from our lives. Sterilizing things, putting makeup on it, using nice terms like they passed, they, did, like, they died. We spend so much time pushing these things away. And I think we have lost something profound in removing cemeteries from proximity of sanctuaries. There's a reason why the cemeteries were by the sanctuary, you know. Because it told the gospel story. The stark reality of sin, the death that sin and disconnection from God bring, that God that brings when we're disconnected from God, and then the victory of the cross to overcome. And then the forthcoming resurrection, all there in union of grave plots and steeples and stone headstones and pulpits. It's all it's all there. It preaches. And strangely, ironically, we have become a people less formed by the glory of resurrection by protecting ourselves from thoughts of death and by pretending and by distracting ourselves into oblivion and refusing to see the reality of where we're going. Imagine with me. By the way, I'm not like pitching to the elders this week that we go dig some plots in the back. (laughs) I'm I'm not there. Give me a couple weeks. But imagine every Sunday, after the distraction and the busyness and, and the blurry non-presence of our lives, imagine coming to church and having to walk past tombstones of people. People you know with, with their names on the stone. And walking past the, them through the cemetery into the sanctuary and then praising God, hearing the gospel that Jesus has overcome death and his spirit now lives within you. And if that's the case, that first fruit, that down payment will, will, will show up in full when you rise from the dead, brand new body, and you get to live eternally with him. And then you walk out those doors and you walk past the graves and you go, they're getting up. I'm going there, but I will get up too. Do you see how formative that is for how you live your daily life? All spiritual formation, all Christian spiritual formation happens because of the resurrection, because there's resurrection life in us, changing us, transforming us. May we see things that way. May we see things that way. In Christ, we have resurrection life now. Live like it. In Christ, we will be resurrected from the dead. Live like it. Friends, live like death won't hold you because, in fact, it won't. Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who sleep, as it was with Jesus. As it was with Jesus, so it is with his apprentices. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you Thank you for your grace. You are good to us. You are the Lord of all creation. Death couldn't hold you. You kicked the back out of the grave. And you took a a, a triumphant processional. (laughs) And so here we are, proclaiming you as king. Father, take these many words and seal them in our heads and our hearts. May may my brothers and sisters walk out of here with, with great hope with great hope in you. We love you, we need you, and we come to this table now because you're awesome. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.